So according to my Facebook feed, the apocalypse is here. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, it is a constant stream of, of chaos, of despair, of hopelessness, of catastrophe. It is our democracy imploding. It is the Constitution in tatters. It is, it's a nightmare on my Facebook feed right now. Uh, and I'm only exaggerating just a little bit. I mean, that's, I, my, how's your Facebook feed? Yeah, it's kind of a wasteland of horror. I mean, it's, 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 there's little glimmers of hope in there, but um, it is, it's intense. And there's a reason for that, friends. I just want to remind us. It, it's only been like three weeks, but it feels like it's been years, right? And so I don't know if you follow the doomsday clock. There's this uh, doomsday clock. It's a symbolic clock that uh, people, like smart people, use to kind of represent how close we are to existential catastrophe. So it's like it thinks about war and you know nuclear war and the climate. Well, so that clock just ticked forward 30 seconds, I think it was, and so we're two and a half minutes from existential catastrophe. Right? You're hoping for some hope this morning. I'm just I'm starting I'm starting an apocalypse, and it does feel a little bit apocalyptic. It feels. Terrifying. It feels like there is a lot of despair. I have been living with it. I know many of you. And what I want to share with you, there are more responses than the ones I'm going to share, but there are historically several ways that human beings respond to this sense of the world coming to an end. So you can imagine which box. No one has to raise their hands. You can just imagine where you are at this point in time. One response is to check out, to ignore reality as it is, and to just kind of lean full steam into hedonistic self-fulfillment, like I'm gonna you know, turn to drugs or sex or food or entertainment, it requires some numbing out, but that's one way to respond to the horror uh, of reality. Another response can be to double down on despair, to like really land really solidly in despair and say, no friends, it's not possible that it's gonna get better. This is the end, like it's over, this is the end. The end is here. Another response can be to say, well, it's not that bad. Let's just see how this plays out. And then you stand by watching as ICE deports people who have lived here for 20 years, as families are broken apart, as corporate interests overwhelm any semblance of the common good, as pipelines and continued oil extraction are green-lighted. So we're in an apocalyptic moment. And how we respond as people of faith matters tremendously. I wanna say first and foremost that apocalypse is not all doom and gloom. It gets a really bad rap, <laughs> apocalypse does. It really, it really does. Apocalypse, what we need to know this morning is apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world, the literal end of the world or the blowing up of the world. What it means, as the Reverend Kathleen Norris writes, is it's, it's connected to this Greek word, which means revealing or uncovering. So an apocalyptic moment is when the veil that has prevented us from seeing clearly what's in front of us has been removed. When we now see what is in front of us unobstructed, it is the pulling back of that curtain to reveal the world as it is. It's a disclosure. Apocalypse is a disclosure of something that had been hidden. And we, my friends, are in that moment. Are we not? 
that moment where not just has the curtain, not just has the curtain been pulled back, but the whole like, you know, bar and the, the bolts in the wall, all of that has just been pulled down. We are seeing, some of us for the very first time, the, the landscape of our country. We see very clearly now, most of us, we see very clearly now the impact of relentless scapegoating of Muslims and immigrants. We see clearly now that racism and white nationalism is very much alive in our country, never mind a black president, never mind the civil rights movement, and that that movement, this white nationalism, has taken root in the White House. We see clearly now the disdain for truth, the manipulation of facts, the conflicts of interest at the highest levels of government. We see clearly now that science doesn't care one whit whether you believe in it or not. So we're in this moment where we are seeing clearly now all of these things that have been just beneath the surface these past two years or decades or since the founding of this country, depending on your frame, and we catch a glimpse of this thing that's been fermenting and infecting and going viral on the internet that is not hidden any longer. None of it's hidden. And for some of you, it's a relief. I know, you've told me that this is all now out in the open. This is the United States in some ways you've always known. It's just now more visible to everyone else. Reverend Kathleen Norris writes, while uncovering something, that we just as soon keep hidden. So while we're uncovering something that we just as soon keep hidden, that can be a frightening prospect. The point of apocalypse, she says, is not to frighten us into submission. And I would add, it's not to frighten us into fear. In many ways, an apocalyptic moment is a moment about what is possible now that we are seeing clearly. Norris continues, Kathleen Norris continues, apocalypse is meant to bring us to our senses, allowing a sobering and usually painful glimpse of what is possible in this new life that we will build from the ashes of the old. That's the moment we're in right now. It's not the end of the world. It is just a moment of deep revelation. And what we need to know is that these moments, these apocalyptic moments, they require deep imagination about what could be. They require prophetic imagination. They require the deepest imagination we have within us so that the seeds of this new and different future can be planted. And I take great hope in the fact that our Unitarian Universalist ancestors they know something about these kind of moments, these apocalyptic moments, because our theology, our religious way of being in the world has grown out of these sorts of moments. Here's what I mean. In the mid-1700s, there was a religious revival afoot in the New England colonies. This revival was led in large part by Reverend Jonathan Edwards, some of you may have read, at the same time, maybe you read Antigone, maybe you're reading Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody remember that sermon? A couple of you know that sermon? Yeah. It's a pretty sweet read. <laughs> like, if you're, if you're down for just feeling 
horrific about the state of your soul and imagining that you're just held over this flame, the flames of hell by this tiny little thread that God's like, like well, I guess I won't let you fall, but I'm about to. Um, it's a good read, and I would go read it. So this religious revival, Jonathan Edwards, it was marked by preaching that was emotional and intense, and it was also marked by these very vivid pictures, these, these words, these metaphors of what hell was like and the suffering that you could experience if you didn't turn back to Jesus and to eternal salvation. So of course, no one was on Facebook at that point in time. So they didn't start and end their day with like a whole bunch of messages about being in the hands of an angry God or anything like that. But I can imagine that this religious fervor was in fact sweeping the land. And I can imagine that it felt apocalyptic to some of the people who lived then. And so this moment called forth a deeply imaginative response from some of the religious leaders of that day. These are our ancestors. These religious leaders who are now sort of seeing the landscape in front of them clearly. The veil had been revealed. Here's what existed, this religious fervor. And through their reading and study of the Bible, these, our ancestors, also often known as heretics, they came to believe. <laughs> heretic, heretic, the root of that word just means to choose, right? So it's someone who actually studies the scripture, studies their relationship with the holy, with the divine, pays attention, and they say, you know what? I don't see evidence for this. I choose to believe that the scripture points to a loving God, that the scripture points to Jesus as a human being, maybe the most exemplary human being, but a human being. So our ancestors, these heretics, looked at their Bible and they basically said, you know what, it doesn't, really jive with us that God's love wouldn't embrace the whole of creation. That doesn't make any sense. And our ancestors read the scriptures and studied with each other and they said, we don't see any evidence of hell here either. That doesn't make any sense. We think human beings have free will, they said. It's not predestined from before your birth. And we think Jesus is one way of many ways to deeper wisdom and truth and insight. These are our religious ancestors, these heretics. So though the religious roots of Unitarianism and Universalism run deep and those theological ideas run deep in history, in this country, they really did emerge out of an intense religious revival moment when emotions and anxiety were running high. Out of that moment, this new compelling vision of what religion could be, of who and what God could be, and how we could be with one another, more understanding, more open-minded, that vision emerged. Our ancestors said then, and we still say today, give the people hope, not hell. Which brings me back to our reading. This reading, Imagine the Angels of Bread, by Martin Espada. Espada has been called the Latino poet of his generation and the Pablo Neruda of North American authors. He, like other poets and prophets before him, speaks from this apocalyptic moment in the poem. And his words cut through the noise, the illusions, they cut through the veil in order to give birth to a vision of what might be. 
He speaks from that place of listening to that still, small, moral voice that the choir sang about. And he summons this prophetic imagination, he summons his moral power, and he uncovers, right? He reveals some of the mistreatments of immigrants, the poverty of children, the horrors of racism, and he imagines a future that flips the present reality on its head. This is the year, he writes, that police revolvers stove hot blister the fingers of raging cops and nightsticks splinter in their palms. This is the year that dark-skinned men lynched a century ago return to sip coffee quietly with the apologizing descendants of their executioners. This is the year that those who swim the border's undertow and shiver in boxcars are greeted with trumpets and drums at the first railroad crossing on the other side. This is the year, he says. And in an interview in Yes Magazine, Espada says, when I think about the impossible in the poem, imagine the angels of bread, I do so knowing that there were other injustices considered unresolvable that were resolved. There was a time when almost everyone accepted slavery as a given. But you had the abolitionists who said, we must imagine a world without slavery. We must. He continues, more recently, most people in this society accepted the notion of racial segregation by law. But there were people in the civil rights movement who insisted that it had to go, who insisted that we imagine the impossible, a time when that was no more. My argument, says Espada, implicit in that poem, is that if we could get rid of slavery in this country, we can also get rid of the injustices we are struggling with today, which are much less formidable, much less impossible. At this point, the interviewer sort of interjects in the conversation and says, everything you've cited, everything, has taken a huge revolution to overcome. And Espada responds, well, yes. <laughs> That's why I'm talking in terms of the imagination in that poem, because we must imagine. When you're talking about a huge social transformation and the huge social struggle that precedes that transformation, there must be a huge shift in the collective imagination, he says, before any of that can take place. That's the prerequisite. He says, we must imagine the possibility of a more just world before the world may become more just. And friends, I believe this is the work of poets and prophets, it's the work of people of faith, it's our work to imagine a more just world before the world may become more just. He goes on to say, I can't predict the future, but I consistently attempt to visualize a world different from the world that we take for granted. Imagination is a prerequisite for action, a prerequisite for change. Things that we say are impossible today are indeed possible. And so in those moments when the apocalypse hits, it is poets, it is writers, it is people with moral conscience, it is people of faith who begin to speak into that unveiling. 
when the underbelly is revealed, when the false narratives collapse, when the truth is uncovered, it is the poets and the prophets and the people of faith that tap into that still, small, moral voice and imagine something so different it feels impossible. But they dream and they plant seeds in the hearts and minds of their community. They imagine a future that could be. They use their moral power to bring a new future into being through art, through dance, through protest, through acts of solidarity. No tool is too small, no dream too bold. So what I want to tell you now is a, sort of a confession, and that is it's my own journey these last few months. And I will say, I'll start with this. I will say we, we know it's bad, right? We have the onslaught of our social media feeds. We have the newspapers. We have all of that. We know it's scary. There is a huge flood of that stuff out there. But something has turned for me in these last, just in these last few days, these last few weeks. Something has turned for me that I no longer can live in that place of just being fearful, just feeling overwhelmed and back on my heels. I'm now seeing this moment as the greatest opportunity, not to downplay the very real lives that will be affected, but this is the greatest opportunity perhaps in our lifetime to cast and to dream about a vision of the future in partnership with many other people that can actually take root in this country. I think about those who have gone before us. I think about Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph. They organized the People's March on Washington in 1963. This people's movement, they imagined, they dreamed. It was a movement unhooked from political party because both political parties had been co-opted by the wealthy, by the elite, by corporations. I imagine Octavia Butler and Brian Stevenson and Audre Lorde and Margaret Atwood and Ella Baker and Alicia Garza and so many others through their words and their actions painting a vision of a new future. I want you to dream with me. Can we dream of a future where no child goes to bed hungry? Can we dream of a future where no doctor has to remove a cockroach that's become embedded in a child because they live in such squalor and poverty that that is the life they know? Can we dream that every family, every child has a roof over their head, a school whose doors are open and welcomes them in? Can we dream of a planet that is in right relationship with its people so that there's a sustainable future for our children and grandchildren? Can we dream of a community, of a country where women and men and transgender people are treated equally and fairly in the discourse about grabbing women, violating women, assaulting women is a thing of the past. Friends, we are called to dream right now. Can we dream? We are called. We are called to do the deep dreaming. Can we dream of reparations, some meaningful kind of reparations for the native nations? Yeah. 
for the native nations, for the people brought here in chains, for other people of color whose lives and wealth and bodies enhanced our own. Can we dream? Can we dream of a future where no one goes bankrupt or dies because they cannot afford health care? Can we dream? Can we dream? Dream with me. Can we dream of a country that lives up to its promise of welcoming the refugee, the poor, the desolated, who need a place where our values, our deepest values can live? Can we dream? It is time. It is time to use our moral power our dreams to imagine a new future. And it is, friends, it is a crazy moment we are in. There is no question about it. It is easy to put your head in the sand. It is easy to numb out. It is easy to declare total and catastrophic failure for the whole thing. But those are not the options that we have people of faith can pick up and hold and move forward with. It is not an option in this moment not to dream. It is not an option. It might be a crazy moment. It might seem crazy to dream, but that is the response throughout time in this moment to put forward that dream of what could be. As Antigone says to the king, that much at least I can do. And what a person can do, a person ought to do. And as Susie so beautifully said in her call to worship, that line of text reaches out across time and space to remind me that my moral power is not judged, now hear this church, is not judged by what is reasonable, what is attainable, what is sensible, what is logical. It doesn't matter if the hill seems too high or the barriers insurmountable or the task too impossible, my moral power, says Susie, is not determined by reasoning. What a person can do, a person must do. We are in an apocalyptic moment. What's been hidden is now fully visible. And if we listen, what's around us is the whispers and the hopes of this new world waiting to be born. This is the year. This is the year we help dream this new world into being. This is the year, friends. This is the year. Amen.